from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. De. Oh. Eh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, a whole neighborhood having to move was completely new. This is a battle and that the puzzle maker is expected to lose. You don't want people to think you're feeble-minded. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Okay, what's a 14-letter word for crossword puzzle creator? If you said cruciverbalist, well done. Another acceptable answer would be Brendan Quigley. Brendan Emmett Quigley has been making crosswords for the New York Times since he was a senior in college 20 years ago. And it's actually pretty easy to spot one of his puzzles without even looking at the byline. He's known for embedding lots of pop culture into his Times puzzles. Like, if you come across nine-letter word for colorful swallow, that is definitely a Quigley clue. I've always wondered about how crossword puzzles got made, so I asked Brendan if he'd come in and train me a little bit, and he agreed. Brendan, thanks for doing this. Glad to be here. So what is the nine-letter word for colorful swallow? That would be jello shot. Of course, when I first read this, I, I thought, oh, hmm, swallow, some kind of bird. Yes, well, the, uh, the English language is incredibly fluid, and since it's written down, you sometimes want to find a way to twist the mind of the solver uh, you want to make things that look like verbs actually are nouns and that sort of thing. So you have been a, a crossword fan forever. What's the best clue you've ever seen? Like one of my all-time favorite clues, Mike Shank wrote for the Wall Street Journal, and it was uh, strips in a club, and the answer was bacon. Wow, that that is pretty brilliant. Um, th- there's a term in, in crossword making unfair crossings. What, what does that mean? Uh, if there's an answer that, that, that requires some sort of knowledge, you want to make sure that the other answers going the other way are all easy to get. Uh-huh. Otherwise, that one square where the two of them cross, you have no shot. Interesting. I, I, I Now that when you say that, I immediately understand that that's the way puzzles are created, but I was never conscious of that as a rule. Funny you should say that because I wasn't uh, aware that this was a thing until a crossword blogger by the name of Rex Parker, critiqued one of my puzzles in the New York Times where the illustrator N.C. Wyeth crossed uh, the Boston town Natick and said, who in the right mind is going to understand what's going to fit in that one square? It's totally unfair. From now on, this shall be known as the Natick principle. Huh. And so uh, my puzzle was the one coined a term that we now uh, refer to those bad crossings as natics. See, but that's not – I again, it's all a matter of what you know. But both Natick and NCYF, to me, seem not too arcane. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean th- there's a rule in puzzle making that says that it, it, this is a battle and that the puzzle maker is expected to lose. Right. I never thought of it that way. That's interesting, yeah. When you, when you solve a puzzle, you want to go, wow, I am so clever for figuring out all of these right. clues and figuring out the theme. And, and that was a great puzzle. I had a great time with that. They, you don't want them to go, Brendan, 
You're a jerk for putting those two <laughs> yeah, answers yeah, in yeah. there. So um, you start with, with 225 blank squares, right, or, or 441 on Sundays. Yeah, that math sounds about right. Yep. And, and, and so, so how do you start? What, what's the first step? The calling card for all the puzzles is a theme. The theme is the linking element to all the long answers in the puzzle. Uh-huh. And it could be something incredibly simple like a category where you have a bunch of answers, maybe say answers that begin with parts of a bicycle, like a chain of fools, pedal pushers, right. a handlebar mustache, something like that. Uh, you want to find a, a new way to sort of play with the English language. And really the hardest part of any puzzle is, is coming up with that gimmick. I'm going to come up with every possible option for it so that if anyone else were to do this gimmick, they'd be stealing my idea. Right. And by the way, you use the, the word gimmick a lot. Is that the term of art in crossword puzzles? Well, no, it's theme. It's definitely theme. But, yeah, I guess I, I just always said gimmick because uh-huh. – um, Because you hate yourself. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, let's have some fun. Uh, let's make a crossword puzzle together on the air. Uh, I, I guess a miniature since it's my first one ever. Absolutely. So, listeners, if you want to follow along, uh, get a sheet of paper and draw four squares by four squares, right? So you'll have 16 squares in all. And then you'll need to number them. So starting up in the upper left-hand corner, you number that first one, one, two, three, and next to that, four. And then, going back to the left side, where you have the numbers vertically, you put in five, and below that, six, and below that, seven. So you have one, two, three, four across the top, and then down the left-hand side, it says one, five, six, seven. Okay. And now that we all have our grids, Brendan, our first task is to figure out a theme, right? Yes. I thought for our purposes, we would just put Kurt at one across. Okay. So K-U-R-T. That's correct. And then we're going to try to fill this in with all common answers that's going to have a maximum amount of fun and a maximum amount of, or a minimum amount of uh, garbage answers. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Minimum garbage, maximum fun. Got it. Yes. Okay. Which is going to be challenging because there's not that much room. So where do you start? You start with K or does it, it doesn't matter, I guess? Well, I think I'm going to start with the U because there's not that many uh, fun things that you can do with that. Right. The easiest way to fill in a grid is to follow the pattern of vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, and that sort of thing. Right. I was trying to think, oh, gosh, what four-letter word starts with U? Obviously, there are many. I mean, I thought the first one I thought of was undo. Is that a bad one? Undo isn't a terrible one. Um, why don't we go with um, – well, let's see what we could do with undo. Okay. The thing that's... Uh, you sound disappointed, th- Brendan. No, no, no. It's totally fine. I'm All just right. uh, trying to think out loud uh, okay. while we're doing this. Okay. So fine. We'll do that. Okay. So we'll do five across now. Okay. And so we want to think of answers, uh, an answer that will, will give us the most flexibility going down. I would like um, a word that is vowel uh, N, vowel consonant. That'll make our lives a shade easier. Right. I'm going to go with a new. How's that? Great. That's, I like that. That's a great word. So after putting in a new, A-N-E-W on five across, Brendan and I filled out the rest of the squares. I'm going to read you the grid we came up with. And don't worry if you don't get it all. 
We've got the complete puzzle on our website, and the rest of my talk with Brendan is really about how you come up with the clues. So for one across, we did my name, Kurt, K-U-R-T, then five across, Anu, A-N-E-W, down from that, for six across, it was Edna, E-D-N-A, and for seven across, Lots, L-O-T-S. For one down, we had Kale, as in Pauline Kale, the great New Yorker film critic, K-A-E-L. Two down is the word undo, U-N-D-O. Three down is rent, R-E-N-T. And four down is twas, like twas the night before Christmas. And once we had the completed grid with all the words, it was time to write some entertaining clues. And the first one we tackled was three down, rent. I mean, well, there's plenty of ways you can clue it. You can clue it as, like, the monthly right. expense. You could clue it as, well, La Vie Boheme musical. Right. Now, I'm thinking, I'm thinking in our little in our little puzzle uh, and, and attempting to see a theme, I'm thinking, okay, Rent, the musical. Kale, Pauline Kale, the movie critic. Me, I, ha- I write books and I have, a, I have this radio show. So we've got a kind of culture theme going, so maybe we go with that. Sure, we could totally do that. So if we have Kurt is... Uh, well, we could say host know. of public radio culture show or something. Well, see, that's totally unfair. This needs to be clear oh, okay, and direct fine. because the host of right. any okay. uh, public radio show <laughs> okay. could be Ira. Okay. It, it could, could, but that's be... three letters. But yeah, sure. How about public radio host Anderson? There you go. So why don't we try to do this with all uh, pop culture clues? Okay. So the next one across would be a new... I don't know... Anything off the top of my head for a new other than A New Hope, which was the subtitle for the first Star Wars. So why don't we do Perfect. quote blank hope, close quote, and then in parentheses, subtitle for uh, episode, what was that, four of the Star Wars series? Great. Perfect. Edna was, she was a character in The Incredibles, wasn't uh, she? Probably, or, 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 or she you was could the, go, it's, it's less contemporary, but, uh, you know, Dame Edna, you could do Dame Edna. We could do Dame Edna. We could Edna also do Malay. Crime yeah. we... Yes, Crime Author Buchanan. I like that. Plenty I like of... Crime Author Buchanan. That's good. All right. We got radio. We've got movies. Right. We've got mystery writer. Now lots. So what do we? Oh, how about um, studio spa- uh, spaces uh, like filming? Locations. Oh, back like back lots. Yeah, that's good. And how? how but but what would you say? M- movie studios. Uh... Places where people get shot. We could put a question mark there. Places where famous people get oh, shot. Oh, I see. Shot. Maybe? There you go. Uh, that's good. Yes. Although, talk about that's That's kind of difficult. But Yes, it is a little difficult. But again, it's, it's an example of uh, using uh, the English language to play with it. I mean, the idea for a lot of – that one would have a question mark at the end of it. So when you see a question mark, it says, we're being cheeky. We're being a little too clever by half. Right. So there we go. So we've got all the acrosses. Now we go with the downs. Yep. Uh, Pauline Kale, uh, she is a book critic now, isn't movie she? Movie critic. A, a, a late movie critic. Is she not, she's not coming down for breakfast she is, anymore? She's, she's not coming down for breakfast anymore. No. Yeah, you're right. She's long gone. Yes. All right. Well, I would just say for a name like that, because, again, it is crossing. Uh-huh. Uh, Kurt, you'd probably want to have it be a, a layup. Uh, so maybe something like I lost it at the movies, critic. Yeah, Pauline. See, you know every, you do know everything. You knew the title of her book. <laughs> this is where googling comes in pretty handy. Hmm. Okay. The last one that's going to be challenging, I think. Undo. I'm not sure how we're going to uh, have that have something to do with uh, pop culture. Yeah. 
Um, it is a it is on the pull down menu on everybody's computer for you know undo what you've just done. Is that a way to go? Certainly, I was just trying to see if there's a way we could do it as a um, pop culture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Uh, hey, sound engineer, which uh, menu has uh, undo on uh, Pro Tools? It's an undo button. Yeah. What? There's an undo button. Yeah. What's the icon for the the button? It's uh, Command Z. Command Z. I like that. And there we go. We can have a, a the command echo, so we can have Command Dash Z Command in Pro Tools. Excellent. And for Twas. First word in Jabberwocky. Or the night before Christmas. Or the night before Christmas. And there we go. So we've clued everything to the best of our ability. Excellent. Entirely pop culture. Groovy. So it is sort of mini theme. Yes, yes. I think we did a pretty good job. Brendan and Emma Quigley, this has been very fun. Thanks for letting me help you create this primitive puzzle for Studio 360. My pleasure. And to see the me-themed puzzle we just made, go to studio360.org. Coming up, a Harvard neuroscientist tests your movie knowledge. But what's the most famous line from Star Wars? Like, what does Darth Vader say to Luke Skywalker? I can almost guarantee that what you think is the correct answer is wrong. You'll find out next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. It is almost here. Christmas, that is. And there's a Christmas movie that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. People say it's glib and manipulative, and even though it's a rom-com, they say it's not really that romantic or comedic. But one of our listeners respectfully disagrees. My name is... Oliver Butcher. I'm a screenwriter. I've lived and worked on the West Coast for 25 years now. I wrote a movie with Liam Neeson called Unknown, and I have a movie coming out either later this year or early next year with Chadwick Boseman called Message from the King. And my guilty pleasure is the movie Love Actually, written and directed by Richard Curtis. The Love Actually is about 10 different interrelated, intertwining stories concerning love in it, all of its various permutations. And it follows it through the five weeks prior to Christmas, climaxing on Christmas Eve and with a postscript one month after. So what's this big news then? We've been given our parts in the Nativity play. <gasps> and I'm the lobster. The lobster? Yeah. In the Nativity play? Yeah, first lobster. I think I've seen Love Actually 24, 25 times. I mean, I mean, the irony is I do not own myself Love Actually on DVD. I think that's a measure of my guilt, by the way. Obviously, I do feel guilty because otherwise I would own it. You know, you don't want people to think you're feeble-minded. I think one of the reasons why Love Actually rouses such hostility is that it occupies a world that has absolutely no analogues in real life. The characters, what they do, what they say, how they behave... People just don't behave like this in real life. Anything to put off actually running the country? Um, notably, the tousled Prime Minister in the form of um, Hugh Grant. This is Terence. He's in charge. Good morning, sir. Uh, good morning. I had an uncle called Terence once. Hated him. I think he was a pervert. But I very much like the look of you. Huh. 
And then there are other aspects to the movie which probably wouldn't pass muster these days, like the fact that at least three of the storylines are about male employers forming relationships with female employees. And likewise, Liam Neeson has this really inappropriately sexual banter with his 11-year-old stepson. Anybody overhearing that would call child services. By the way, I feel bad. I never asked you how your love life is going. Mm-hmm. No. As you know, that was a done deal long ago. Unless, of course, Claudia Schiffer called, in which case I want you out of the house straight away, you wee motherless mongrel. He's 11, and his mother's just died. Oh. No, no, we all want to have sex in every room, including yours. And his dad's making jokes about having sex with Claudia Schiffer in every room of the house. I mean, it's not what you would say to your recently bereaved... 11-year-old stepson. It just sort of isn't. So I guess my point is that the universe of love actually is not a universe that exists in any recognisable platonic form. It just doesn't. It doesn't, doesn't bear any resemblance to life whatsoever. But to say that, I think, is entirely missing the point of the film. It's extremely well constructed. None of the storylines, despite the fact there are ten of them, ever really flags. I think the scene which sort of exemplifies the kind of level of writing and directing skills is the scene where Laura Linney almost consummates her relationship with the hot designer Carl. And there's that moment where they're at the office party and then that Nora Jones song, Turn Me On... Is cued. I'm just sitting here waiting for you to come on home and turn me on. And it, and it bleeds brilliantly over from the party into getting back to her apartment. Well then. Then you get through the front door of her apartment, and then there is this brilliant moment where she says, Just, um, Would you excuse me for one second? Sure. Just, um, and she just darts round the corner. So there's a wall separating her from Carl, who's at the head of the stairs. And she does this little fist-clenching dance of glee that she's actually got him back there. And it's very, that was a wonderful moment. It's like there's almost a de facto split screen there, just provided by the scenery wall. Um, and then she gets, she, she go, rushes upstairs, she's tidying her bedroom, which is like, that's a very real thing. You know, she's tidying the mess in her bedroom. And then Carl comes up there, and then you have this, very kind of well-done, sort of awkward disrobing scene between the two of them. Just tug it. Okay. Uh, leading into what you are pretty sure is going to be the sum of all uh, all Laura Linney's joys in the movie. You're beautiful. But then, of course, the, the phone rings. And then for the first time in the movie, yes, when I, she banters, she talks to her brother. I, I'm not quite sure it's going to be possible to get the Pope on the phone tonight. But... You realise that she's talking to somebody who is yes. very disturbed. Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure he's, he's very good at exorcism. But Then she explains to the first time to Carl and to the audience that she has a brother who's in a mental facility. Um, and then she and Carl try to pick up where they left off. And the brother calls again, and she leaves. And so in the, in the course of about six minutes, the tone has completely shifted. 
it goes from charming to being awkwardly comedic to being real and then suddenly boof and you know that she has to go the film itself is an extraordinary kind of melding of a commercial a musical and a romantic comedy and i think that that tends to be a commercial director's skill to be able to segue from one emotion into a completely different emotion uh, boldly and quickly and i would say that that's the technique at play here that it requires balls really it's interesting that on netflix in the kind of digest of the film i think they call it a treatise on love and i think it is i mean you know it's not going to win a phd but it's a, it's definitely a treatise on love I think what it is is a great pop song as opposed to a meaningful rock song. And I think that's the key to its success that it's both charmingly innocent on the one hand and incredibly sophisticatedly written and directed and edited and scored on the other. Nothing you can do can't be done. Yeah, sure. It it tugs your heartstrings, it's manipulative, but if that's manipulation, bring it on. I mean I think that it's 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 just what cinema's all about. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. Incidentally, I liked Love actually as well and didn't even know until recently that I was supposed to feel guilty about that. Oliver Butcher alerted us to his guilty pleasure in a voice memo and we want you to do the same about yours. Give us a rundown of the uncool thing that you love and why you love it, and send that to Studio 360 at wnyc.org. I say I liked Love Actually a lot, but until I heard Oliver's detailed defense, uh, I barely remembered it 13 years later. In fact, how well do we remember really familiar cultural artifacts that we've seen or heard a million times, such as... Now, it seems like that line is supposed to end with, of the world! And if you thought so, you're not alone, but you are wrong because of the world only appears in the bridge, not there at the end of the whole song. There is a newish name for this kind of memory glitch. It's called the Mandela effect. That's when multiple people misremember the same thing in the same way. The phenomenon gets its name from Nelson Mandela, who apparently lots of people believed died in prison in the 1980s. There are other examples, like people who think Humphrey Bogart said the line, play it again, Sam, in Casablanca. So why are so many of us so certain of so many things that never happened at all? Steve Ramirez is a neuroscientist at Harvard, and he studies how memories, real memories and false memories, are formed in our brains. Steve, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. So, first off, uh, you're a neuroscientist. Uh, how, how does the brain record a memory? Uh, if I could give you a straightforward answer to that, I'd probably be out of a job. <laughs> so, luckily, uh, we don't exactly know how the brain stores memories, but I would think about it more as, you know, memories have 
there are sights and sounds and smells and you remember so for example like my favorite memory is when uh, Malcolm Butler intercepted Russell Wilson's pass to win the Patriots Super Bowl forty nine yeah. and, and that you were, memory I guess you grew up in Boston that means. Oh, yeah. So when you started this with We Are the Champions, I'm like, this is basically the, might as well be the song for all Boston sports. <laughs> right, but, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, so when you think about it, like the memory of that interception, there's the memory of what happened. There was the interception. There's the emotional feeling that I had, which was basically jumping up and down, cheering and right, crying out of right. joy. Uh, and there's, again, sights and sounds and smells associated with that memory. So those sights and sounds and smells are mediated through different parts of the brain, which basically communicate with each other in real time to bring to life that rich representation or that rich memory of what happened in the past. So the hippocampus seems to be this crucial component in the brain involved in that process. Although it couldn't do it by itself. It needs to say, oh, well, what were you smelling then or what was playing then? or what w-? It, it, it needs to go elsewhere to, uh, to, to kind of retrieve and collect other relevant bits of the memory? Yeah. So imagine that a memory, for example, that has uh, – that's highly visual or highly smelly, for example. Right. Then the hippocampus is involved in recruiting – parts of visual cortex or parts of uh, smell cortex, for example, and so on. So it basically can help integrate all of these different uh, sensory modalities, we call them, and try to in- integrate them into some cohesive whole. Right. Our memories are malleable because of the nature of the design of the brains. Is that why memories are so kind of fungible and, and revisable? Yeah. So there's, there's a, it's a really hot button right now that, you know, one interpretation is that memories are malleable because – the same machinery, for example, the hippocampus, that enables us to recall the past is also the same machinery that enables us to reconstruct the past. And it also happens to be largely the same machinery that helps us imagine ourselves in the future. Now you've, you've explained to me why it's, that's, that's a good design, that those two things are connected, the remembering the past and, and, and imagining the future, because if they were not, then you'd, you'd be pretty piss poor at <laughs> imagining the future, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I also think that, you know, it's just like I hesitate, of course, to use the word design. But for me, it's more of uh, the machinery isn't perfect and there's a lot of cognitive hiccups that exist. And right. sometimes there's real pathologies that exist as a result of these kinds of misfirings. But when you recall a memory, for example, it's not a tape recorder or it's not sort of an iPhone video of the past. Like right. It's actually a reconstructive process in that the memories that are most real – are probably the ones that we don't recall. Right. Because the second that we recall them, we immediately begin this process of modifying those memories with bits and pieces of new information. Meaning they're, they're virginal and pristine until we mess them up by grabbing them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which ironically also means that every memory is a kind of almost mild false memory. Yeah, sounds complicated. Sounds more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> I mean, the way that I put it is we have – Maybe, what, like 80, 90 years in our career to try to reverse engineer what 4 billion years of evolution <laughs> yeah. got a chance yeah. to do so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you're more hopeful than I if you think you have 90, but you're young. Um, <laughs> um, uh, a couple of years ago, you and and a collaborator figured out how to implant false memories, at least in mice. Uh, walk us through that experiment. So – we managed to find the cells in the hippocampus that were involved in processing the memory of a safe environment. In this case, we're, we're working in rodents because we have exquisite ac- access to their sort of cognitive machinery. So we were able to find the cells in this case that processed the memory of a safe box that it was put in. And then what we did was we were able to artificially turn that memory on while the animal received just some mild aversive stimuli. It doesn't hurt the animal by any means. It's almost like a static shock. It's just a surprise 
when we placed it back in the originally safe environment, the, the animal actually showed some kind of fear responses to that environment now. Uh-huh. So you, you've planted these false memories in mice in a lab, um, but people do have false memories, remember things that, that never happened. Uh, are there patterns to those? Are there certain kinds of false memories that tend to develop and then we can make conclusions about, oh, this is the kind of thing that is subject to this? You know, if I were to ask you, for example, what's the most famous line from Star Wars? Like, what does Darth Vader say uh, to Luke Skywalker? Uh, Luke, I'm your father? Yeah, right, exactly. So Darth Vader actually never said, Luke, I am your father. He just said, no, I am your father. There's plenty of these instances where, uh, you know, one of the more uh, tragic, albeit famous ones, are that, you know, if you ask uh, many people who, uh, who were old enough to remember 9-11, if you ask them, like, how many times did you see uh, the footage of the first plane, like, hitting the Twin Towers? Right. You know, they'll say, well, we saw, we, saw it every, we saw it all day. Like, right. of course, you were glued to the TV. They saw nothing. Yeah. Right, because that footage wasn't available until 9-12. Right. The Mandela thing in particular is interesting to me because uh, it was a big deal when Nelson Mandela got out of prison, apartheid ended, he became president immediately in the 90s, years after yeah. he was supposed to have died. So I don't, I mean, to me, it just seems, maybe it's a false memory. Maybe it's just stupidity. I don't know. <laughs> I think that, you know, I don't know what our bandwidth for memory is, but I think that there's, for some reason, like our brain fills in these gaps in these stories. And yeah. maybe it's an attention spanny thing where when we're learning about Mandela, we remember like, oh, wow, he was in jail for that long. And then right. the rest, you just kind of skim over the Wikipedia <laughs> right. page and it doesn't stick. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, another uh, one of these that people talk about uh, uh, at the other end of uh, world historical importance is are the Berenstain Bears. Uh, yeah. people, people swear that these books they read as kids or read to their kids were the Berenstein Bears. So from your neuroscientific point of view, how does that come about? Yeah, it might be some weird confirmation bias that for some reason our brains are susceptible to. Like we've just seen Stein or that example. We've just seen that linguistically more and more and more. Right. And for some reason that sticks because we're kind of working with, you know, we call it like a schema. Like we're, we're working with this kind of uh, this backdrop of memories that we personally experienced and then right. those that happen to – sort of be confirmed by our previous experience is what we're most likely to believe, even if they're false. No, it's a, it's a shortcut that the brain does. And I... Exactly. Uh, my, my name, Anderson, is spelled S-E-N. And of course, every day it's misspelled S-O-N. So I experience <laughs> that uh, firsthand constantly. Um, then now, the Queen song um, that doesn't end with Of the World. Um, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's got to be. So that example actually really struck me because I was singing it along <laughs> as the intro to this show was happening. And then when you said that it didn't end with of the world, I was like, what? Like, yes, it does. And I <laughs> guess, no it, no, it doesn't. But maybe the ending to that song, maybe, you know, a group of people or large masses now obviously sing it that way. So we just interpret it as, well, that's just the way the song is. Like, our memory is already imperfect as it is. And then sometimes when you have multiple people with imperfect memories – confirm each other's bias yeah. about that particular memory, then it's more likely to kind of snowball and then you get a little pocket of people that believe A happened when in fact B happened. And then this is the kind of thing that involves now access to technology, access to media, 
access to each other's opinions that confirm our own and each other's version of our histories that also confirm our own. And then in some instances, like a meme, it reaches escape velocity and then takes on a life of its own. Well said. Uh, and I assume, however, that you don't buy the, the sci-fi explanations that many people earnestly believe about these kinds of false memories that, oh, it proves we're sliding between these you know, parallel universes in a multiverse or, oh, it is the matrix. It's a glitch in the matrix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that I think it's a really cool idea. But until it becomes a kind of tractable, testable hypothesis, it's just – it's, you know, not just. It's very good science fiction, but the key word there being fiction. Right, right. Steve, it has been a pleasure talking to you and uh, I really uh, thank you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. You can watch Steve Ramirez's TED Talk about implanting false memories in mice at studio360.org. The second season of the TV series The Man in the High Castle is just out on Amazon. I'm binging it, as I did with the first season a year ago. The show is based on the Philip K. Dick novel, and the premise is that Germany and Japan won World War II and occupied America. That alternative history is unsettling to watch, of course, but especially so after an election where actual neo-Nazis have been hailing Trump. When I see people in a you know, gathering in Washington, D.C., giving the Nazi salute, I do feel an eerie relevance. That's James Panawazic, who is the chief television critic for The New York Times. He's gotten some blowback for pointing out the parallels between this TV show and our present political moment. And we talked about it. You can hear our whole conversation on Monday, but only if you subscribe to our podcast feed on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Still ahead, a theater company brings August Wilson back to Pittsburgh. I equated this experience to being a Shakespearean actor performing at Stratford on Avon, because he's our Shakespeare. The posthumous homecoming of a great American playwright. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. The late playwright August Wilson won the Pulitzer Prize for his play Fences in 1987, but it never became a movie because Wilson always insisted that it required a black director to film it. Well, Denzel Washington stepped up, stars in it as well, and Fences opens in theaters on Christmas Day. Now, don't you go through life worrying about whether somebody like you or not. You best be making sure they're doing right by you. Denzel Washington also has a deal with HBO to produce the full set of what Wilson called his century cycle about African-American life. Ten plays, one set in each decade of the 20th century, and all but one of those set in Pittsburgh, where he grew up. And as the Fences movie was wrapping there in Pittsburgh this past summer, a staging, an unusual staging, of another August Wilson play was about to get underway. And that production ended up revealing a lot about how Wilson's old neighborhood, the Hill District, has struggled for the last half century and how the city itself has wrestled with just how to honor Wilson. Erica Barris is based in Pittsburgh and has the story. The three-story apartment building at 1727 Bedford Avenue is beside two vacant lots. 
The building itself was condemned long ago. But there's something about this house. Something about the backyard. Something, if you're a fan of August Wilson, familiar. If you know his work, and if you walk back there, first thing you're going to think of, this is the set for seven guitars. That's Mark Clayton Southers. He's directed the play Seven Guitars in a Theater. But for a production this summer, he was getting ready to stage it in this actual backyard of Wilson's boyhood home. Wilson referred to this backyard when he wrote the script of Seven Guitars. It's exactly like it's described in a play. Two weeks before opening night, workers drilled and hammered away on the house. I'm related to August Wilson. Uh, I'm his nephew. Paul Ellis runs a nonprofit that owns this house. For decades, the house matched other houses around, boarded up. So how did the home of someone of Wilson's stature manage to nearly topple over? I would think that the way a city would honor a white artist of August Wilson's standing would have been much larger. Salah Yudin grew up with Wilson and acted in some of his plays. He even originated the lead role in a Pittsburgh production of Jitney. And he's thought a lot about why the city hasn't properly memorialized August Wilson. The city always considered August Wilson its native son, but I think the city considered August its native stepson. The son who's treated more like the favorite, Andy Warhol. Both ultimately left Pittsburgh. Wilson left the city, but never stopped writing about it. Warhol left and never looked back. But it's Warhol's legacy that's everywhere. A bridge was even renamed for him. And the Andy Warhol Museum is a popular spot in the city's north side neighborhood. Bridges, buildings, museums. Pittsburgh steel mills closed in the 1980s, and the city made a remarkable comeback. But that renaissance seems to have drawn a line around the Hill District. 40% of the people who live here are below the poverty level, and the Hill is 95% Black. For decades, it's endured crime rates much higher than the rest of the city. But when August Wilson was born here in 1945... When we had to go in, in the house... As it started to get dark, we would put pillows in the windowsill so that we could look out and watch the parade of activity and people dressed up, going up and down the street, going in and out of the clubs, talking smack. Charles Mingus, Miles Davis, and John Coltrane were all drawn to the jazz clubs here. The neighborhood was thriving. And then there was news that things were about to get even better. The truly dynamic American cities are those that are coming to grips with the problem of outmoded structures. Increasingly, we are seeing large-scale demolition as the first step in building modern cities. This is from a 1956 U.S. Chamber of Commerce film promoting urban renewal. Once those buildings were demolished, developers promised that more impressive ones would rise in their place. We are steadfast as we tackle problems and the hammer of demolition will be sure to swing with determination. Blacks were on board with the idea of the urban renewal. That's historian Larry Glasgow. I talked to him in an empty lot on the hill where August Wilson's school once stood. The black community supported it. The black political establishment, the Pittsburgh Courier, were all very excited about it. In fact, they wanted it. But you have to be careful what you hope for. 
95 acres of the lower hill was raised, including Salah Yudin's home and the school he attended with August Wilson. In its place went an arena where the Pittsburgh Penguins played and blocks of parking lots. As for the big plans for redevelopment around the arena, they never happened. It was very, it was devastating. The idea of a whole neighborhood having to move was completely new and perplexing and had never been been heard of. That was in the mid-1950s. If you go there now, this is what you find. It's a parking lot, and there are no signs of life ever having been there. And that hockey arena? It's a hockey night! The players are about 98% white, and the fan base is pretty similar. It became the symbol of that destruction and demolition. So many people hated the Civic Arena and hated the hockey games that brought white patrons from the suburbs to watch their hockey games and to park all over the neighborhood and then leave to go back to their homes in the suburbs. Mindy Fullalove wrote a book about how urban renewal affected Black communities. She calls Pittsburgh's Hill District... The poster child of the horrors of urban renewal. So not only was it vibrant, it was politically powerful, culturally powerful, socially powerful, and it was becoming economically powerful. All of that was set back by the urban renewal project. But people still try to make the best of it. And then, on April 4th, 1968... I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Riots erupted in black neighborhoods all over the country. In aerial news footage from the Hill District at the time, it looks like a bomb was dropped. Blocks upon blocks of buildings were burning. Families lost their homes when they were burned to the ground. Businesses that were destroyed never reopened. We have over 4,500 families that are in need of food and clothes within this area. This is newsreel footage from that week. A reporter is talking to the coordinator of a relief office. And uh, if someone gets food today, uh, when it runs out, say, tomorrow or the next day, can they come back and ask for it again? They will have to come back. They have no other alternative because all of the stores here within the Hill District have been burned down to the grounds. But Mindy Fullalove says the riots were not just a response to the King assassination. The riots are, are in part a response to the empty promises of urban renewal. August Wilson witnessed all that devastation of the riots and of urban renewal before he moved away in 1978. During an interview in the 1980s, Bill Moyers asked Wilson what happened to the neighborhood he grew up in. Uh, the same thing has happened to most black communities. It's, uh, most of it is no longer there. Uh, it's uh, the buildings and what used to be at one time a very thriving community, all but a depressed community, but uh, still there were stores and shops all along the avenue. Uh, they are not there anymore. And those grocery stores that closed after the riots, they didn't reopen for decades. It wasn't until three years ago that the Hill District got a proper grocery store again. That's where I found Cynthia Davis. Well, hello, beautiful. Hi, how are you? I'm blessed. How are you? Filling up a shopping cart and greeting neighbors. Hi, baby. Come here and give me some sugar. Bring it in. Bring it in. She's 60 years old, 
and she vividly remembers those riots. I guess the only way I could describe it, it, it just felt like the community had a heart attack. It just had a heart attack and just kind of died off for a minute. A grocery store opening is not big news in most places, but in the Hill? It meant a lot in the community and for the community, but I don't know, I was a little bit still, I was still somewhat disheartened because it was so long overdue. Just a few blocks from the supermarket, the cast and crew for the August Wilson play is in what was once his backyard. Preparing for the show has meant getting permits, reconnecting electric lights, and building bleacher seating. It's a week before opening night, and there's so much left to do. They aren't just hoping for the best. They're praying for it. We pay homage to the sun, to the moon, to the world, and we pay homage to this house in which August Wilson was born. E by A, we pay homage and respect. Director Mark Clayton Souther says this backyard that Wilson recreated in the play is special. It's sacred ground. It's, it's like a mecca for the theater folks to come to. Seven Guitars takes place in 1948 and features seven characters before and after a funeral. In this production, seemingly small gestures gain significance. Like when a character says, Dr. Goldblum, right across the street, only cost $2. Oh, please, we got to find out what, where, where his house was. Um, He's one of these houses. We got to find out where we point to the right direction, okay? okay? You know where it was? Yeah. Which way? August Wilson died in 2005. His funeral procession wound its way through these streets, even by this house. By then, his friend Salah Yudin was on the Pittsburgh City Council representing the Hill District. He helped establish the August Wilson Center for African American Culture, which cost $42 million. The building is downtown. A short walk over the Allegheny River on the Andy Warhol Bridge to the Andy Warhol Museum. The Warhol Museum, by the way, has been bustling and thriving since it opened in 1994. But shortly after the August Wilson Center opened, there were money problems and mismanagement. Center officials were forced to lay off half of its staff yesterday. The center features exhibits that reflect African-American history and culture. The center is currently behind in payments on a $7 million loan. The center closed. Then foundation money was lined up to open its doors again. But the scars remain. It's painful to watch the newspaper stories of the failed August Wilson Center, the foreclosure, the this, the that, the taxes, the that, and compare that against what we all hoped we were building by calling it the August Wilson Center uh, for African American culture. It's a beautiful August night, and people are shuffling in and taking their seats in the backyard of the childhood home of August Wilson. Like a movie set, a few trailers serve as a backstage. Actors are bustling around. Wally Jamal spent his childhood running the streets of the Hill District. Now he's an actor, and he's been in nine Wilson plays. Tonight, he's in Seven Guitars. I equated this experience to being uh, a Shakespearean actor performing at Stratford on Avon. To me, it's the same, because he's our Shakespeare. Seven Guitars was performed throughout August and drew people from all over the city. It sold out most of its run. But what audiences really seemed to connect with was the nostalgia 
It's set in 1948. The nostalgia was for the period before urban renewal, before the riots, when every night in the Hill District had this kind of excitement. For your information, uh, if you haven't already figured this out for yourself, this here is called the Hill District. <laughs> That's one of two things that any woman coming to Pittsburgh needs to know. Now, the other thing is where to find me. <laughs> well, you know, the hoochie coochie man. Everybody knows him. Erica Barris produced that story. By the way, the interior of Wilson's childhood house is being restored, too, as a performance space and cafe. That's it for this week's episode. We will have a new one next week, as usual. And in the meantime, as usual, we will feed you some more stories in our podcast feed. So come on and subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. And if you do, I will love you more. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes... Jenny Lawton. Andrew Adam Newman. Louis Mitchell. Krista Ripple. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Matt Fiddler. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. Gabriella Cortez. Judy Gu. Jackie Harris. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Forget paint and metal. A couple of artists are creating their own art supplies from living organisms. You've got to appreciate that biology is the most awesome way of building things on Earth. And it does it necessarily in partnership with itself. And it works. Making art out of life next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. 